0: Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten to him by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for, what, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Super Bowl Sunday. I'll be listening maybe as I'm driving tonight. It's been there's always a lot of hoopla made about the Super Bowl. But folks, we are in a much greater Super Bowl game than a mere Sunday night game. We are in a spiritual, everlasting Super Bowl game. No Lombardi trophy at the end, but we're going to be receiving the crowns from Jesus Christ himself, and we're going to be in his presence for all of eternity, because we know what? We are the victors, right? We already know the outcome of that game. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning, then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I even knew him all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory. He plunged you to victory beneath the cleansing flood. And I think the Apostle John would say a great amen. That's what I'm talking about. We are victors. We are conquerors. John says we are overcomers. We are by definition overcomers. There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 that says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. What a promise. Us being believers, God always leads us in triumph because being in Christ, we enter into his triumph. He plunged us into victory be- beneath the cleansing flood. Now, we saw last week that Paul actually tells us that we are what? more than conquerors, super conquerors. John says we are overcomers, we are triumphant. Once a person has given their life to Christ, has been reborn, given a, spirit, a new spiritual life in the Holy Spirit, believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and asks Him to be Lord of their life, We are, John says, overcomers all the way to the end. Our salvation is eternal, and we have that uh, eternal security. Nothing, Paul tells us, can separate us or remove us from the love of God. Do we struggle sometimes? Yeah, we do. Do we blow it when we're tempted by temptation sometimes? Sure. But John wants us to know that when it comes to the world, to flesh, and even to Satan, we are... Overcomers and we need to know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, which we have We can actually live right now In this lifetime as overcomers Back in chapter 2 verse 27 of 1st John we're given an amazing promise And as for you the anointing which you received from him remains in you it abides in you it stays in you And you have no need for anyone to teach you. You don't need somebody else to try to teach you otherwise. John says they're false teachers. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you remain in Him. So He remains in us, us, abides in us, stays in us, and we in turn remain in, abide in, and stay in Him. Through the thick and thin of things, against all human odds, our faith will be sustained. And our place in heaven is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. We are told that in Scripture, that we have been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit until we enter into the presence of the Lord forever. Amazing promises. Now, how do we become overcomers? Or how do we know we're overcomers? The same way we know that we're saved. The number one way is through faith. And we looked at that last week. Verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 4 tells us that everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world, he asks in verse 5? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's number one. We must stand on that faith. But authentic faith translates into action. There should be a noticeable change in one's life. And James says in chapter 2, 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Isn't that interesting? It should be obvious. We should not be fitting into the world system so well that nobody can see a difference in us. And that's where John goes next. So faith is the main test of our salvation and of our being overcomers. Then there are two more tests which are really evidences of that faith, and that is love and obedience. Now, we've talked about these already because John's already talked about these. But since he brings them up again, we're going to talk about them again briefly here. And then we're going to go on to something that is truly amazing um, as well. So the second evidence of being an overcomer is our love. Our love for the Father and for others. If we go back to verse 1, we read this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God, that's faith, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God. You can tell an overcomer very simply, he or she who loves God and loves those whom God loves. The children born of him. Again, John's commentary on the two greatest commandments, right? Love God, love people. So the new birth, regeneration, transformation, a new life in Christ. You can call, call it anything you want there. It's all, it, it all refers to the same thing. Not only brings us into a faith relationship with God, it, it also brings us into a love relationship with God and with others. This is so important that John talks about this in almost every chapter that he's writing here in this letter. In chapter 2, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, what's that called? That's called obedience, right? Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has already been perfected. The two go hand in hand. That love of God should be observable, see? But by this we know that we are in him. How? By keeping his word. In chapter 3, verse 10, John sounds extreme in his language, but it's not extreme when it's true. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother or sister. He calls them children of the devil. That is spiritual truth, even though it's uncomfortable truth chapter 4 verse 7 and 8 beloved let us love one another for love is from god and everyone who loves has been born of god and knows god the one who does not love does not know god because god's love verse 12 if you love one another god remains in us and his love is perfected in us verse 21 this commandment we have from him that one that the one who loves god should love his brother also over and over over it's absolutely necessary that we love So are we getting the point? John's hitting it every time. There's there's a little song that we used to sing that must have been taken from uh, 1 John. Love, 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 love. The gospel in one word is love. Love uh, Love your neighbor as your brother. Love, love, love. How do you know you're an overcomer? How do you know you're a Christian? First of all, because you continue to believe. That's faith. Secondly, that you love God in a way that manifests itself to others. It's a visible expression of your life as you love those whom God loves. You now, loving God is a matter of desiring to honor and please Him. Isn't that what we do when we love someone? One commentator wrote, "...the greater your love for someone the greater the compulsion of your heart to do good for them, to honor them, to show respect and regard, and to provide all that they need and more, to seek their pleasure and even to do their will. And so those who love God are caught up, consumed with pursuing what honors the one we love. And then they also love those whom he loves, and scripture calls them the children of God. It's a love that is unconditional, it's sacrificial, it seeks the best for others over self. It's agape. And that leads us to the third characteristic that marks those who are overcomers not just faith, not just love, but obedience. Look at verse 2 again, into verse 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. He mentions commands three times. There's a progression here that I see. We believe in God. Okay, we believe in Christ, who is God. That's called faith. And that faith then produces love. And that love then produces obedience. Now, humanly speaking, we tend to balk at the word obedience because it conjures up in the mind someone telling me that I have to do something or somebody telling me that I can't do something else. But that's wrong, particularly with someone you love. If you love somebody and they ask you to do something, we can't do it fast enough, right? Right? True love always issues in obedience, always rushes to the will of the person who asks, always longs to meet the need. Listen, the genuine proof of faith is sustained, loving obedience. The genuine proof of faith is sustained, loving obedience. And the only way that we can really demonstrate that we love God is to obey God. Faith without action, James says, is dead. Saying we love him without showing that we love him is also dead. What John is saying is that if we believe as a true Christian that God is God, Christ is God, Christ is Lord, God is sovereign, we're going to find God the object of all our affections. And we're going to love God, and we're going to love Him so completely, perfectly, John says, that it's going to show up in our desire to do what He asks. And he says, his laws will never be burdensome. That, that seems like a contradiction in, in, in terms, doesn't it? I mean, our obedience laws, they always seem to be burdensome, but his laws are not burdensome. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest Take my yoke upon you. That conjures up horrible images, doesn't it? A yoke. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. The Greek words say it's comfortable, and my burden is light. Look at verses 2 and 3 again in 1 John. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep His commands. It goes from action to attitude. Carrying out is the action part. That's the doing part. Keeping his commands is a different Greek word, and it means to keep, to guard as a wonderful treasure. Keeping his commands means that it becomes a wonderful way of life for us. If you love me, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, you will keep my commandments. And then in verse 20, 21, he goes on to say, The one who has my commandments and keeps them, guards them in their heart, is the one who loves me and the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will reveal myself to him boy what a promise what a promise but people get this all jumbled up in their minds you see we we don't obey to please we are pleased to obey we don't obey to please, we are pleased to obey. It's a result of our love for Him. It's a result of our transformation that we are obeying, and it becomes natural for us. So a sustained faith in Christ produces a, st- a sustained love for God and others, and that sustained or perfected love then manifests itself in a sustained obedience to God's Word always a flow there. It all works together. And that obedience, both Jesus and John tells us, will never be burdensome. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner our joy will be complete, even in obedience. Remember, this is not a legal kind of obedience that presses us down until we cave in and grit our teeth and do it against our will. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, that's what's going to put you down, though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart. You became obedient from the heart. What a great statement. You became obedient from the heart. We're talking about a heart obedience. It's because that's what's in us now. We do it because we want to, not because we're forced to do it. People try to say, you know, the Old Testament, oh my goodness, it's all about law and obedience. It's horrible. But the New Testament, oh, what a relief. It's all about love and grace. But that thinking is wrong. That attitude is wrong. Even in the Old Testament, obeying God's law was a source of joy, David expressed this in Psalm 119 over and over again. Listen to just a few of them. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. He loves God's commandments as much as all the wealth that he had. Verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. Verse 97, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If we go back to verse 54, your statutes are my songs. Who sings about laws? Nobody. David did. Most of us don't consider laws as a source of joyful song. But that's exactly the way the psalmist looked at God's law. Because he loved the Lord, he loved his law. Enough to sing about them because they brought joy. Now, why should obeying God be so delightful? Because His Word is a reflection of Him. His Word is a reflection of Him. Because to obey His Word pleases Him, and we love Him, and we seek to please Him. Because He never gives us laws that, if if obeyed, are not for our benefit. And because we function in a relationship with God that is not based on a relationship of fear, but rather it's a relationship of love. That's why His law should be a joy and a delight. Now, we've talked about the definition of an overcomer. We've talked about the description of an overcomer last Sunday and this Sunday. And there's another aspect of the overcomer that I want us to look at, and that is the promises or to an overcomer. And for that, we're going to have to step out of 1 John chapter 5 a minute and we're going to jump over into Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which are the letters to the churches. Fascinating. And we find, of course, in these seven letters, promises to the church in general, both positive and negative. And that's what we usually focus on. That's what I've always focused on. Okay, look at this church. Oh, it's a horrible church. They're Hot or cold. They wants to spew them out of their mouth? And we look at all, all the horrible things in these churches and we focus on the churches. But at the end of each of these seven letters, there's a promise. And it's a promise to overcomers. This has been a fresh and exciting. Study for me this week. These become then the universal promises that the Lord gives all overcomers. And we are the overcomers, folks. The first one we see is, um, is that the overcomer will eat of the tree of life. The promise is in the first letter written to the church of Ephesus. And it's the opening seven ch- uh, verses of Revelation chapter 2. Now, the church had a serious problem. They had left their first love. They'd grown cold. But there were some who had remained faithful. In the middle, uh, middle of verse 7 we read, to him who overcomes, Okay, to those who continue in the faith, those who continue manifesting the love of God, those who continue to be obedient to God, that's what an overcomer is. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now what is that? What's that promise? Well, you remember when Adam sinned, way back in Genesis, God drove them out of that small paradise called the Garden of Eden. He drove them out from his presence and didn't allow them to eat of the tree of life. You see, the tree of life caused someone to live forever. Tree of life, okay? To to live forever. And once man had fallen into sin, God, in his great love for mankind, did not want them to live forever in that condition. The tree of life symbolized eternal life, and the paradise of God symbolizes heaven here. And so what we have here is a promise that all overcomers will live forever eating from the tree of life in the paradise of God. How cool is that? And just as the Garden of Eden had an amazing water system with four rivers going in all directions, the heavenly paradise is even greater. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 22. Verse 1, and he showed me a river of life, excuse me, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of his street. On one, on either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit. One tree, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, all year long, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, there is no sickness in heaven, okay? Scripture tells us that there's no scripture, no more, no no sickness, no pain, no no death. So really, there's no need for healing as we think of it. But the word used here for healing is therapia, which is the word that we get our our, our word therapy from. Perhaps a better way to translate this in the context of heaven is that the river of life and the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit produced all year long and the leaves that are on that tree will be for our therapy, for our well-being, for our enjoyment forever in paradise. To him who overcomes, you and I, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That's amazing. That's only one promise. Second promise for the overcomer is that we shall not be hurt by the second death. This comes in the second letter to the church at Smyrna. Verse 11, the one who overcomes will not hurt, be hurt by the second death. What's the first death? That's, that's physical. The physical death, the wages of sin, is death. Remember in the garden, God said to Adam from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat, for on that day you will eat from it. From that day that, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. On that day, mankind died spiritually, and the process of physical death began. The day we believed, our spirit was resurrected in Christ, and we were given new life, never to die again. And God's promise is that those who have this new life and are therefore overcomers, He said, I'll grant. To eat of the tree of life forever, which is in the paradise of God, and will enjoy it forever, never having to worry about death again. We will not be hurt by the second death. That's his promise to the overcomers. The third promise is that we will be given the hidden manna. We see that in chapter 2, verse 17, the letter to the church of Pergamum. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. What in the world is all that about? In this letter to Pergamum, Jesus acknowledged that there are some who hold firmly to my name and did not deny the faith. Classic definition of an overcomer, right? To them, Jesus said, First, I will give you the hidden manna. Now, that of course helps us to think back to the time in the wandering in the desert where God provided Israel with a manna um, in, in their wanderings. And you remember that that was a direct provision for, for God every morning. Then Hebrews nine verse four tells us that in the ark of the covenant, in the holy of holies, was a golden jar holding." The manna, that was a memorial to the feeding of God's people in the wilderness, which gave them physical life. You also remember that Jesus uh, told the Pharisees, as he was having conversation with the Pharisees in John 6, that he is the true manna. He is the true bread of life. The Pharisees were so proud that their fathers had, forefathers had uh, eaten of the original manna that, uh, that Moses had provided. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who, gave you, who has given you the bread of, out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And now here in Revelation, Jesus says to the overcomer, I will give some of the hidden manna. Why does he refer to it as hidden? I think it was referring to the fact that right now we're limited. We can't physically see him. We can't physically touch him or feel him. But when we are taken up to be with him, we're going to enter in the, into the richness of the fullness of the one who is our very life now. The fullness of blessing and the eternal presence of Jesus fully revealed. I believe that's what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, when he said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I know fully, just as I also have been fully known. One day, folks, the manna, the bread of life, will no longer be hidden. He will be fully revealed in all of his glory. Then he also says there in verse 17, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone. Hmm. There's a lot of speculation as to what that's actually referring to, especially in the context of being overcomers and conquerors. may very well have to do with, and this is the most plausible explanation that that, uh, I would lean towards, might have to do with the ancient Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victors in athletic games. And the winner of the contest was awarded a white stone with his name inscribed on it, and that served as a ticket to the special awards banquet afterwards. So, this could very well be referring to a Jesus' promise to, overcome, uh, to the overcomers, entrance to the eternal se- a victory celebration in heaven. And a new name will be written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Because Jesus knows each one of us intimately, he's got a special, personalized name. Gotta be on that stone. That's often done in different cultures, even today. You know, when, when my wife and I went to uh, the Côte d'Ivoire uh, to minister there among the people, they gave us personalized names. Nancy got a cool one <laughs> Nyagali. Nyagali means joy. And so all of our African brothers and sisters would always refer to her as Nyagali. I was given the name. N'golo, just means a third son, which I am in my family. It's it's personal, but not quite as cool as her name. But I was known as N'golo. Back in the day, as we know in our American Indian culture, personalized names were given, you know, running bear, flying eagle. I always thought that was so cool. Here in Revelation, Jesus says, There will be for each of you on your white stone a personal name that shows that I know you. Aren't you curious what name he might choose for you? (laughs) The fourth promise is in the letter to Thyatira. We will be given authority over the nations. Still in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 26. The one who overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds until the end. Okay, that's the definition again of an overcomer. I will give him authority over the nations he shall rule them with an iron rod. We talked a little bit about this just briefly in our spiritual growth class this morning. As the vessels of the potter are shattered, as I also have received authority from my Father. We're going to be given authority over the nations. This has to be during the the millennial kingdom, where Christ is going to share his authority with his faithful overcomers, which includes you and I. I think that's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 25, 21, when he said, I will make you ruler over many things if you are faithful over a few. And it says that we as overcomers will rule the nations with a rod of iron. There's not going to be any messing around. No sin allowed to express itself. But interestingly, the word used to rule in Greek It does mean to govern and rule, and there will, we talked about that also in our class, there will be need to govern and rule because there are going to be unbelievers who are going to try to rebel, but it also means to shepherd. Same word, means to shepherd. So the sense is that we will be Christ's under-shepherds, governing or ruling with Jesus with a shepherd's heart. When we are taken up in the rapture, we receive our rewards and then come back to earth with Christ at the end of the tribulation. We will then reign with him for a thousand years, Scripture tells us. And he delegates authority to us by which we shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. You know, it's like the shepherds who shepherd his sheep, right? They, they carried a rod or, or a staff to bring the sheep back into line when it was needed and also for their protection. We will be delegated that responsibility of shepherding under the authority of our great king, Jesus Christ himself, over all the peoples, all the nations in the kingdom. And then in Revelation 3, we find a fifth letter to the church at Sardis. We actually find two amazing promises here, starting in verse 4. The first is, we will receive worthiness. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White is a symbol of purity, of worthiness, of righteousness. The white is a reflection of our real and true righteousness. Right now, in our present state, we have been covered by the righteousness of Christ. And we are considered worthy only because He is worthy while we are still unworthy. His righteousness has been credited to us. A the theological word is imputed. In our glorified condition, however, which takes place at the rapture, we will have been perfected. will become totally righteous ourselves and therefore become worthy. And having been made worthy, we'll be wearing garments of white. How cool is that? And then John adds the fact in verse 5 that we receive security. Our security continues. Listen, the one who overcomes will be clothed the same way in white garments, have been perfected, made righteous, made worthy, and I will not erase His name from the book of life. And I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. This is Jesus speaking. We not only receive worthiness, we receive security. I will not erase their name from the book of life. Back in John's day and beyond, cities had a registry Kings in their kingdoms had a registry of citizens, and when a person committed some horrendous crime, their name would be removed. It was blotted out of the city's registry. They were considered outcasts. And Jesus is saying that that, uh, that will never happen to you in the world to come, in the city of heaven. Your name will never be erased. And in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, we find that we will become pillars in God's temple. Verse 12, verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter 3. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from, from my God, and my new name. Now, I've been in a lot of churches it's not so much the newer ones anymore but if you go into some of the older ones you'd often find a little plaque on the back of a pew. And it's there to it might say something like in honor of Betty Jones. Grandma Jones had died. So the family of Grandma Jones had gotten some money together and they purchased a pew for the church and the plaque was put on there as a means to remember her for the years to come. Back in ancient Greece, important people were on about placing a pillar in one of their great temples, and their name was engraved on the pillar to be remembered for hundreds of years. In fact, you can still see some of those names, from what I understand, in the ruins of Greece and in Asia Minor and even in Turkey. So they've lasted hundreds of years, and God says, when I bring you to be with me, I'm going to give you a new name, a prominent name of honor, and it will be on a pillar in my temple forever. And you know what's even more amazing than that? There won't be any pride involved, because we'll all have been perfected. We'll all have been perfected, and we'll all have perfect humility, and yet we'll understand that it was only through the work of Christ by God, that we will have been made worthy to receive such an honor with our name on a pillar in heaven. And he says he will not go out from it anymore. It's kind of a bizarre statement. Why would he put that in there? Philadelphia, the city that this letter was written to, apparently was located near a large volcanic field, constantly subject to earthquakes, which often destroyed the city, and people had to run for their lives out of the city. Where we're going, there's not going to be any earthquakes. We'll never have to worry about those pillars falling and coming down in our heavens. Not in heaven. We'll come into the temple where our name is on the pillar and we will be safe. But God's not just going to write on a pillar. God's going to write on the overcomer. Some of us are going to get our very first tattoos from the greatest tattoo artist in in, in eternity. In fact, it sounds like we're going to get three. Three tattoos, okay? I I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, it's an address, right? (laughs) The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. It's another way of saying that we will be his forever. Forever with his name written on us. Another reason why our names will never be erased from the Lamb's book of life. Secured, loved, honored in in inconceivable ways. And There's one more. The greatest of all. It just keeps getting better and better for overcomers, doesn't it? I mean, we're promised eternal life in the paradise paradise of God and we'll never ever be hurt by the second death. Uh, No fear of ever losing our eternal uh, life. On top of that, we're going to have the full fellowship of the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself, and we're, we're going to have a white stone, writ, perhaps even a, a crystal diamond, that gives me entrance into the celebration with a personal name written on it. And nobody knows but me. It's Christ's personal name for me. And then we're going to um, be able to come back to earth and be delegated authority to rule with him. And we're going to be wearing white garments symbolizing our worthiness that we've never known before. Our names will never be erased from the book of life. God is going to know my name because His Son is going to confess me, my name, before the Father and before the holy angels because He knows me and He loves me and He gave His life for me. And therefore, I belong there. Jesus says, He belongs, she belongs here. And to boot, we're going to have a pillar in the temple of God with our name on it and we're never going to have to run out of that place in fear. And for total security... We're going to have God's name in the place of our dwelling written on us. Isn't that amazing? Can it get any better than that? Yeah, it can. (laughs) The eighth promise. We will sit with Jesus on his throne. That doesn't boggle your mind. I don't know what would. The seventh letter to that lukewarm, nauseating church of Laodicea. I'm going to spit them out of my mouth. Even there there were some overcomers. Jesus says in verse 21, "The one who overcomes I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my Father on his throne." How can that be? But that's what Paul told us back in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, isn't it? God raises us up with him with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where is Christ sitting? He's sitting on his Father's throne. Right now, positionally, spiritually, we are already seated with him. But the full reality of that is yet to come to pass. It's going to happen. That's mind-boggling. It's an amazing thing to be an overcomer, isn't it? And that's what we are, John tells us. What a privilege to believe in Jesus Christ and to love God and others with his perfect love and to be given the power, the power to obey God's word and through that obedience to receive blessings even now and to think of all that still awaits for us as overcomers. That's exciting to me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We're gonna sing that song as we close this morning. But pay close attention as we sing the last verse. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed what? In righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim, we can claim it, and claim the crown through Christ, my own. That's what we're talking about. That's what John's talking about. That's what it means to be an overcomer with all the promises that we have to look forward to. And in light of that, we can endure anything in this life. With that glorious hope, looking forward. Father, this morning, this is amazing. This is amazing. Your word is so full, so expressive, so complete. Not only are you blessing us now, but you have given us so many amazing promises things yet to come for us who are overcomers. And Father, I pray that we would not just sit back and okay, one day I'm going to look forward to that, but Father, you have given us a responsibility to live as overcomers right now, standing on the faith, loving you, loving those that you love, and being obedient to your word, just showing how much we love you because of the faith, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Father, we believe in you. Father, we trust in you, and it's all because of your amazing love. In Jesus' name, amen.